From ESPN Films and ESPN Audio, you're listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts. This week, the story of an epic battle at the corner of Clark and Addison in Chicago. For 40 years, Wrigley Field was the only Major League ballpark without lights. Every single game was played during the day. That is, until Major League Baseball and big money were pitted against a well-organized neighborhood, putting the business of baseball in the spotlight. Longtime Cubs public address announcer Wayne Mesmer narrates our story, The Lights of Wrigleyville. forever known as the kingdom of Chicago, and it did bear the many bountiful fruits of the lords of Wrigley. The first time I saw Wrigley Field was a beautiful summer day in 1969. Came into town on a rickety old Park District school bus. As uh, we walked in and went up the ramp, everything was so spectacular. Then the lords of Wrigley said, let there be natural grass. And there was. It reminded me of watching The Wizard of Oz at a friend's house who had a color TV. I had seen the world in black and white until the moment that they get to Oz and it turns to color. And the lords of Wrigley said, let there be ivy-covered walls. And there were. Wrigley Field turned into Oz. The ivy was greener and the blues were bluer. It was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. And the lords of Wrigley said, play it only by the light of day. And they did. How about that? As Ernie Banks said, I played all my home games under one light, and that's God's light. Wrigley Field under God's own light is something very, very magical. There was a reason to fight for that and why day baseball is still the best way to see the greatest game. The Chicago Cubs are on the air. Back in 1983, the Chicago Cubs were known for two things, day baseball and losing. They've been one of the crappiest franchises in baseball for decades. The team's fiery new manager, Lee Elia, was desperate to turn things around. Lee Elia, yes, sir. 1983. Yeah, that didn't start out too good. It was a Friday afternoon, kind of a dreary day. On April 29th, the Cubs played the Dodgers. Just 9,391 on hand at Wrigley. And we lose on a Lee Smith wild pitch. I don't think he's ever thrown a wild pitch before in his life. So we're 5-14. and 14. And we're walking off the field. And all of a sudden, somebody said something. I know what it was, but I'm not going to repeat it. To Keith Moreland. Moreland and Larry Boa were hearing it from some bozos along the third baseline. And they threw beer at him and called him names. Well, Boa, who's a fiery son of a gun, and Moreland, who wouldn't take crap off anybody, jumped the tarp. We get in the stands and they're throwing punches. So I get up and they're pulling one guy off and then the cops came and they broke it up and we went inside. I wasn't really in a good mood at that moment. They're really, really behind you around here. My fucking ass. What the fuck am I supposed to do? Go out there and let my fucking players get destroyed every day and be quiet about it for the fucking nickel-dime people to show up? This was the mother of all rants. My brothers and I can recite the entire thing. It is gospel in our family. The motherfuckers don't even work. work. That's, That's why they're out here at the, the fucking game. game. They're going to go out and get a fucking job and find out what it's like to go out there and fucking live. 85% of the fucking world's working. The other 15 come out here. It's a fucking playground for the cocksuckers. I hardly ever worked, so I was in the 15% uh, that he was talking about. It was a flashpoint. The nadir, the lovable loser shtick was starting to wear thin. Rip them motherfuckers, rip them cocksuckers like the fucking players. Because if they're the real Chicago fucking fans, they can kiss my fucking ass right downtown and print it. It really sort of summed up what the Cubs were like at that time. They were just in a hole that they felt like they could never get out of. It's unbelievable. It really is. It's a disheartening fucking situation we're in right now. But I want you to really understand this, because I just turned 80. I don't have long. (laughs) I meant the people that we were in the fight with, not the beautiful people that come out to the ballpark every day. 
Where else do you find better fans than in Chicago? Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Lee Elliott just wanted to win. But winning hadn't been a priority at Wrigley Field for half a century. Relax, just relax. In 1932, P.K. Wrigley inherited the Cubs and Wrigley Field from his dad, William. The Cubs were just one part of the family business. The other, serving as the world's biggest seller of delicious chewing gum. He wasn't a baseball guy. I don't think he even liked baseball. But what he did know about was marketing and advertising and promotion. In the 1930s, PK's right-hand man was the legendary Bill Veck. Now, Veck is best known as the two-time owner of the Chicago White Sox. But he started his baseball career with the Cubs. Veck was the genius responsible for Wrigley's iconic scoreboard and the ivy on the outfield walls. He had a radical suggestion for P.K., which he described in an interview in 1985, shortly before he died. Starting in 1934, each year I would submit a plan for lights. Back then, no major league team played night games. The Cubs could have been the first. So Wrigley said, no, I don't want lights. And in May of 1935, the Reds beat the Cubs to it. It's time for the Cincinnati Reds and played the first Major League night game at Crosley Field in Cincinnati. And now, here's baseball. One by one, the other Major League teams installed lights in their ballparks. And each year I would propose another plan. I had worked out so hydraulically, the lights would come out lighted and would go up and then lock in place. And after the game, it would have gone back down. Everybody would have come to see the lights going up and down. Nope. In 1941, P.K. relented and ordered materials to install lights, but only so the team could finish day games that ran into the twilight hours. No inning would start after 8 p.m. The lights were a go for the 1942 season until... Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. As soon as uh, Pearl Harbor was announced, Wrigley said... Nope, forget it. Give all that steel to the War Department. And by 1948, all Major League teams were playing under the lights. All except the Cubs. And now we take you to beautiful Wrigley Field, the home of the Chicago Cubs. Owner Wrigley is justly proud of this ballpark. Wrigley admitted he did not know much about baseball, but he believed baseball was meant to be played under the sun. And in his ballpark, where there have never been lights, it still is. It was a ballpark in blend with its neighborhood. It's not like you see it in the horizon and as you get closer, it gets larger. No, suddenly you turn a corner and boom, Boom. Wrigley Field. Field. Only at Wrigley Field could someone hit a home run and break someone's window. It was different. In 1955, PK said, it's a matter of public responsibility. How can anybody sleep with a loudspeaker going, thousands of people hollering, and cars being parked all over their yards? All you'd need is a louse like me to put in lights. And it would wreck things. It's so densely populated, it wouldn't be safe. Nighttime, you could get mugged. You never know what would happen in the night. And he had the best spokesman, Ernie Banks. We got the set in. Sunshine, fresh air. We got the team behind us. So let's play too. So day baseball became synonymous with the Chicago Cubs. Come out to Wrigley Field, the home of the Cubs. You care to fly right over the wall. No ballpark had ever been thought of as sort of an artistic wonder in terms of aesthetic beauty. So beautiful Wrigley Field, in quotes, became the marketing campaign for the entire franchise. The sun will relax you. Enjoy every minute out at Wrigley Field. Vec was instructed to tell announcers to use the term beautiful Wrigley Field at all times. It's a beautiful day for a ball game, for a ball game today. It became a priority to make it a good family atmosphere. It wasn't about winning. It was about beautiful Wrigley Field, whether the experience at the park was predictable, enjoyable, and repeatable, something you could always depend on. We're going to sell baseball to the same people who buy chewing gum from us. Batter off, right one. The game has just begun, and 
baseball during the week meant a lot of kids at the ballpark. You could hear them sort of little league type chants. Hey, better, hey, better. Let's go, Cubbies. Here's how Cubs announcer Harry Carey put it. You know, day baseball is a way of life in Chicago. Mom can put Becky and Junior on the L to see a game and have them home before dark. Mike Quigley was one of those kids. I was Junior. I would take the train. I had to make a switch over, but I knew exactly what I had to do. And Beth Murphy was Becky. My friends and I would get on the L and come to the games. Attacks! My parents felt that it was safe for me to go. I mean, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, that's extraordinary. I don't even think I was a teenager yet. And then we'd be there sitting in the bleachers for two bucks a pop. This is heaven. I think there was a different reaction at night. Because the idea of hopping a train or a bus to go down into the city at that age, at night, was not something that was really on the table. We really got attached to Wrigley. It was part of the ritual of our lives, like taking communion or something. Heck, it was like we owned the place. And if they happen to lose, ah, that's okay. There are Chicago Cubs. By the shores of old Lake Michigan, where the hawk wind blows so cold, an old Cub fan lay dying in his midnight hour that told. In 1977, P.K. Wrigley died at the age of 82. He left the team and beautiful Wrigley Field to his son, William. Four years later, William did the unthinkable. In 1981, the Wrigley family, which had owned the Cubs since December of 1915, decided to sell the team to their neighbors across Michigan Avenue, the Tribune Company. The Cubs went from being a family business to the lone sports holding of the Tribune Company a national media giant and owner of Chicago's biggest and most influential newspaper, the Chicago Tribune. My name is Ned Coletti. I work for the Chicago Cubs in media relations and then as a baseball operations assistant. I thought, you know what? It is on now. It is real. This franchise was now going to do everything it could to win games and maximize the revenue that it could possibly produce. We are prepared to do whatever is necessary to bring a winner here. Fight, fight, fight through the season. Fight, fight, fight through the fall. In 1981, the Tribune Company's first major move was to bring in a new general manager, a tried and true baseball guy that actually knew how to run a team. Dallas Green. So Dallas Green gets hired, and of course, Dallas Green won a world championship with the Phillies. Fight, fight, fight for it all. Dallas was the sheriff in town. He was big, you know, with a shock of white hair. Kind of a burly man. Pretty gruff. A little foul mouth. Just a hard ass. Even the name, Dallas. It wasn't very much a Chicago name. You know, it didn't have a, a ski at the end of it. At Wrigley Field, oh, Mother Nature no. supplies the lights. But Dallas Green supplies the heat. You better believe it! He was one tough SOB, and myself and others said, great, that's what we need is a tough SOB to really get our cubbies in line. Notice I called them cubbies. Dallas Green never called them cubbies. Because it made them seem like maybe a children's toy or something that could easily be defeated. You remember the Cubs, that cute, cuddly little baseball team? Well, they're not cute or cuddly anymore. It was time to get rid of the lovable losers. I am Bob Ibeck. I came to the Cubs when Dallas Green was hired. Bob's job was to help Dallas perform the lovable losers exorcism. So we came up with the slogan, building a new tradition. Because Dallas Green didn't care about the history of Wrigley Field. He didn't care about the history of Cub fans. He was hired to bring a winner to Chicago. Losing breeds. Bad thinking on Bob. It breeds content with mediocrity. And we have to change an outlook here in Chicago. Go back and look at one lost records. Go back and look at attendance numbers. When I was growing up, the upper deck was closed, except for big games. It was not anything to be proud of. So in 1982... He started to assemble the team. He hired Lee Elia as his manager. The fucking changes that have happened in the Cub organization are multifold. Lelia, yes, sir. There's some fucking pros out there that want to fucking play this game. The Cubs are coming out of the 
my fucking ass. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. You could sense the dark cloud on the horizon. The lack of lights at Wrigley Field may have been a great tradition but it was really becoming a detriment to the organization. The fact is, the Tribune Company, like any big business, had its eye on the bottom line. So the idea of having more night games to spike ratings on television and radio was very appealing. Catch Cubs baseball fever live from Wrigley Field. The Tribune Company owned WGN Radio and WGN-TV, a so-called superstation carried on cable systems across the country. Both had broadcast Cubs games for decades. Grandpa in Florida, Aunt Betty in Des Moines, they could watch every single Cubs game on WGN. America's number one sports station. And almost immediately after the Tribune bought the Cubs in 1981, rumors started to swirl that God's light would be replaced with artificial lights. Cub officials initially downplayed reports that the team was considering lights at Wrigley Field, but general manager Dallas Green later said night baseball at Clark and Addison was an eventuality. The Tribune Company wanted to make money, and Dallas, he wanted to win. I know in my heart that the Chicago Cubs can't win in daytime baseball because the other baseball teams don't play that way. And there you have it. The Cubs feel strongly that lights are a must if they are to effectively compete in a game that's become big business. So, to make the case that day baseball meant bad business, Dallas invoked one of the sorest subjects in Cubs history, the long, festering wound of 1969. The Cubs were in first place most of the season, but by September they completely wilted, losing the division to the stinking Mets. On the top step of a dugout, Cat the color of a hearse. What was to blame? People say it was the curse. But plenty of other people blame day baseball. Don Kessinger was the shortstop for that 69 team. When you play a two-week homestand in 98 degrees heat, it takes a whole lot more out of you than those guys that are playing at night. And it wasn't just the day games that wore the players out. There was the lure of Wrigleyville's fine drinking establishments, like uh, Murphy's Bleachers on Sheffield, right behind Center Field. They certainly came here all the time. They would drink with everybody. And because the players were getting off work in the late afternoon, they got a head start on happy hour. I can assure you that while I loved all those guys, they did not go home right afterwards. And then there were the quick turnarounds after road trips. They were nice. We came back from San Diego and had to play the next day, 120. So you could just see these guys were tired. Dallas milked all this to make a point. Day baseball. It's hard on the players, he'd say. You don't want a repeat of 69, right? People ask about lights, and realistically, they have to come. When they come, only you and I and the devil know. After years of P.K. Wrigley promising there would never, ever be lights at Wrigley Field, the Tribune Company was threatening to renege on that neighborly promise. Wrigley Field hadn't been changed in any substantial way for 40 years. And so the idea of changing it that much, something that cut to the core of what the Cubs had been about in their city for so long, was really a divisive issue. And it set up a battle between the Trib and the neighborhood. Sort of a David versus Goliath. And here's your starting lineup for the Wrigleyville Davids in the great light fight. Leading off... I'm Mike Quigley, congressman from Illinois' 5th District. 
I'm Beth Murphy. I'm the owner of Murphy's Bleachers. My name is Alan Borlack. I'm an attorney. This is Charlotte Newfeld, and for many years I was chair of Citizens United for Baseball and Sunshine. With an extraordinary acronym of CUBS. Cubs, obviously. It was an odd assemblage of people who happened to live in the neighborhood, and they had a lot of different skills and talents, not the least of which was how to get political support. Mike Quigley was a young and energetic aide to an alderman who uh, represented part of the Wrigleyville neighborhood. Charlotte Newfeld was a longtime rebel rouser. And I said, this is going to be a neighborhood problem and we're all going to have battle plans for it. It was already bad enough for Wrigley's neighbors during day games. Like that time Alan Borlack looked out his window and... All of a sudden I noticed, maybe around the sixth inning, that two cars had parked in my backyard. Now this is in the daytime. People are parking in my backyard. Wouldn't it just get worse at night? There is no expressway. There's virtually no parking. You better get uh, home before the night crowd gets there, or you don't have a parking spot. People actually live in this neighborhood. They do not care if our streets and our alleys are blocked with cars, keeping ambulances from sick residents, or keeping fire engines from burning homes. They do not care if our children are kept awake at night by the crowds and the traffic. What happens under cover of darkness when people have too much to drink? The night games make me afraid to be in my own yard. There'll be crime, there'll be vandalism. Tribune columnist Mike Royko thought this kind of talk was a bunch of a hoo-ha. There's this new image of Cub fans. A bunch of barbarians are going to come in raping, plundering, looting the neighborhood. It doesn't take a psychologist to know that there is a difference between a crowd in the daytime and a crowd at night. People act differently. They're more rowdy. I think people are far more likely to have a couple beers, go to the park, have a lot of beers, then go out afterwards and have some more beers. Wrigley Field is a 40,000-person beer garden in the middle of one of the most densely populated neighborhoods in the United States. There weren't public restrooms outside provided by Wrigley Field for their fans. There were houses with bushes. There was a common occurrence to find drunk fans uh, urinating on my tomato plants. We don't want people peeing on our lawns. That was like a rallying cry for a lot of people. There's something about a human being peeing on your lawn that excites the senses and says, I don't want this. This is my land. Use the urinal down the street at some tavern. It just became the symbol of lack of respect that there are people living here who expect to have a good life. And the Cub management initial response was, if you don't like it, too bad. We're going to do whatever we want. You're moving right next to a stadium. What do you expect? And I would say back, you bought a ballpark in a neighborhood. So what do you expect? It goes both ways. Fight, fight, fight through the season. Fight, fight, fight through the fall. It all came to a head on a Tuesday night in Wrigleyville. We invited Dallas to come speak to the neighborhood, and we had a very nice crowd. I don't think he'd ever been exposed to a community meeting. And you could see by his posture, he just wasn't comfortable. One thing I am not afraid of, ladies and gentlemen, is a fight. And if that's what you want, that's what I can give you. He was so awful. So mean to everybody. He was like a bull in a china shop. He wanted to win, and he didn't want to hear about people peeing on your lawn or whatever the concerns. You know, we own it, and to hell with you. I remember that being his attitude, like, who should listen to a neighborhood? How dare you tell us what to do with our property? And so what about our property? People want to be heard and listened to. And so when you're just being told what to do or things are going on around you that you can't control, that's when people get really angry. I don't know anything about lights and I don't know anything about what it does to communities other than... Leave the lake front alone and leave our neighborhood alone. He was a baseball guy. He didn't understand why he had to deal with the neighborhood. He just didn't get it. I don't think he realized it, but he was always from then on a perfect enemy. Fight, fight, fight for it all. Dallas came to me the morning after one of these meetings 
And he says, you've lived here your whole life almost. What am I doing wrong? I says, brother, you got to turn it down a little bit. <laughs> it does not go over well in this city like that. Dallas's antics got Citizens United for Baseball in the sunshine, shall we say, moving. Crohn's are highly effective as a gentle, natural aid to regularity. He spoke out that it was terrible on the players because they were constipated for having to fly in from another town and play during the day. So we bought cases of prunes and had them delivered to his office. They just piled up at the door. Prunes can surely do much to keep us healthy and well. A local music group wrote a little ditty that CUBS used as a fundraising gimmick. Cubs are on the field. And then there were the shirts, the ubiquitous T-shirts. I'm Jody Davis. I was the catcher for the Chicago Cubs. The fans were coming to Wrigley Field with no lights T-shirts. The T-shirts were bright yellow, and the lettering was red-orange. With the marquee of Wrigley Field, no lights in Wrigley Field. And it became very popular. I know I had one, and I'd probably piss Dallas Green off, but I don't think I ever wore it to the ballpark. I probably wore it around the house or something. We're just playing ball. We didn't know. We have rallies which marched around Wrigley Field. The kids all in T-shirts, and we sold a lot of them and kept paying the bills. They were putting up the no-light signs and banners on the buildings. Every window had a no-light sign. Those things really made the neighborhood begin to coalesce. The neighbors decided the best way to protect baseball in the sunshine was to lobby for it. We were well enough organized to find money to rent a bus to take a whole bunch of people down to Springfield. In August 1982, CUBS got strike one when the Illinois legislature effectively banned night games at Wrigley Field. A year later, the Chicago City Council under Harold Washington followed suit. Strike two! People that within their homes and the sanctity of their neighborhoods should have the right to determine the use of that neighborhood. It's just that simple. It seemed pretty simple to the neighbors. But in the summer of 1984, baseball in the sunshine got a little heated. In 1984, the Cubs had become a surprise team. My name is Rick Sutcliffe. I was traded to the Chicago Cubs in June of 1984. They were already in first place. I'm Jody Davis. Watching the city, believing that you can win again, everything just changed. The whole city got so excited. First time that the Cubs ever drew a two million people was uh, Dallas Green's 1984 team. Wrigley was filling up and there was more bars around the neighborhood. The rooftops turned into businesses. Home values were going up, and it just fell into place. There's been a lot of talk about the lights at Wrigley Park. But once we're there, boom, we don't care. We'll play it in the dark. But Major League Baseball did care when the Cubs played their games. Just the previous year, they'd signed a huge contract with ABC and NBC, and it required World Series games to be played at night. If the Cubs go on to win the pennant, there's a problem. One which no one in Chicago can afford to take lightly. In September 1984, the Cubs got one step closer. They won the National League East. Look at that mob scene! And people thought they're going to make the World Series. This became a real concern. How are we going to be able to have World Series games if these Cubs don't have lights? If the team makes the World Series and the games here are played in the daytime instead of primetime, it could cost the league as much as $18 million in television revenues. Instead, MLB and the Cubs did something that was just unconscionable. Major League Baseball told us that we were going to have to play our game somewhere else, and we ended up signing a contract to play down in Bush Stadium in St. Louis. St. Louis? It's inconceivable. St. Louis just happened to be the Cubs' arch rival. The biggest shame could have ever been visited on a Cub fan was to have them played in St. Louis. The late Bill Veck, who by this point was a regular in the Wrigley Bleachers, was P.O. Now maybe it 
the scenario ran something like this. NBC said, well, how about the Cubs? And they said, oh, come on, they'll never win a pennant. Neighbor Alan Borlack was irate. Why would Major League Baseball, with all of their high-priced lawyers, enter into a television contract with NBC and ABC that called for televising night games during the World Series if they knew one of the 26 teams does not have lights? One might wonder, what were you thinking? It's a disheartening fucking situation we're in right now. The clock was ticking. So Commissioner Bowie Kuhn compromised. If the Cubs made the World Series, they'd lose home field advantage, but they could play during the day in the October sunshine. In the end, it was a moot point. First baseman flopped the grounder. People blame it on the curse. The ball hit the dirt right through his leg! It was the stinking San Diego Padres who went to the World Series, defeating the Cubs in the National League Championship Series. Peter Uberoth, fresh off a successful gig as organizer of the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, took the helm as baseball commissioner just before the postseason. That December, Peter, well, he uh, laid down the law for Cubs fans. A letter went from me to the leader of the Chicago Cubs. Ah, the letter. The infamous Uberoth letter. The commissioner of baseball has issued a ruling that doesn't sit very well with fans of the Chicago Cubs, who like to watch their baseball in the afternoon. Get the lights, put them on, and be done with it. I mean, it's a polite way of saying that. The reaction people had here was, you know, who is this guy from Los Angeles telling us what we should and shouldn't do? They had to do it for the best interest of baseball, and the best interest of baseball comes before any individual team. Is that clear? Maybe this is your problem, Peter, and maybe it's your lawyer's problem, too, for entering into such a contract. How can your contractual agreement override local ordinances? Clearly, it was this sense of, we're so much more important than you. Profits matter first. With day games, the Cubs have lost primetime television advertising rates, cold cash for the team. And it really showed in a very blatant way how television was running the game. The day after Uberoth's letter, the Tribune Company sued the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois, claiming that the lights bans were unconstitutional. Was the timing mere coincidence? My personal opinion is that the Cubs helped draft that letter with Uberoth. The Trib and the Cubs could say they were forced into the lawsuit by MLB. They didn't have to be the bad guys. They could just sort of say, well, you know, it's not our fault. <laughs> Right after the lawsuit was filed, Alan Borlack got a call. Members of CUBS were asking me to represent them, pro bono, of course, and uh, I couldn't say no. It was close to my heart, too. Tension in the Chicago courtroom today over whether lawmakers could stop the team from installing lights in Wrigley Field. The lawsuit was about the Tribune claiming we have the right to do with our property as we wish, and the neighborhood saying, no, you don't. It took him 10 days to write a 64-page opinion, which is very prompt. The court's ruling? Laws mandating day baseball at Wrigley Field were perfectly constitutional. It is an excoriation of Major League Baseball, the greed of the owners, and the sheer chutzpah of what they were trying to do. A citizen's group against putting lights in Wrigley Field gleefully read the judge's decision. <laughs> And the last sentence was, you're out. O-U-T. The Cubs are out. The inning is over. The contest is lost. Three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. The community won. The Tribune lost. Enough said. The fight is over. This is when Dallas Green pulled out the Trib's trump card. One of the alternatives is to start looking at the possibility of a new stadium. The Cubs talked about the idea of maybe moving to the suburbs if they couldn't get the city to allow them to put lights in Wrigley Field. And it wasn't just any suburb. They threatened to abandon beautiful Wrigley Field for the most suburban suburb of them all. Schaumburg, Schaumburg, Schaumburg. Schaumburg, 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 Schaumburg Illinois. 
home of what was then one of the world's largest shopping malls. Schomburg, Schomburg, Schomburg. That's when the rumor bill went crazy. We uh, think the Cubs would be an absolutely fantastic tenant for a dome stadium. It was an era of the cookie-cutter, ugly stadiums with artificial turf, no character whatsoever. Concrete, round stadiums that could be easily converted for football, concerts. There was even talk of artificial turf in 60 or 70 night games. Tribune-owned WGN aired a special in October of 1985, narrated by Hall of Fame Cubs announcer Jack Brickhouse. It was called Wrigley Field, the Ivy Walls May Fall. The days of the Cubs at Wrigley Field may be numbered. You had to wonder, was this Tribune-backed propaganda? An attempt to scare the neighbors in the city into compliance? It's hard to know how much of this was posturing, but I'm sure that they were considering it, simply because at that time... The Tribune hadn't really recognized how critical Wrigley Field itself was to the Cubs' identity. Beth Murphy of Murphy's Bleachers was initially against lights, but then... My husband and a friend of his were shown plans for a ballpark that was going to replicate Wrigley Field in Schomburg. Schomburg, Schomburg, Schomburg. The person who knew about the plans for the suburban Wrigley seemed credible, and that changed everything. There was a sense of urgency that you might lose this ball club. This ballpark goes away, you got nothing. What are you going to do? Your business is going to suffer. You're going to lose money, and this place could just become another part of the north side of Chicago. So Murphy and the other Wrigleyville bar owners decided that a few night games at Wrigley would be better than no Wrigley. We don't want to lose the Cubs at Wrigley Field. Here's the late Jim Murphy in that WGN documentary, The Ivy Walls May Fall. And we're going to do our darnest to try to develop a compromising attitude with the rest of the citizenry. The threat reduced some of our support. And in perhaps the most obvious sign, the tide had turned. We had Murphy's Bleachers t-shirts, and part of the logo is a baseball. And I do remember we remade them with a light bulb on it, it said lights on. In October 1987, Dallas Green resigned, blaming differences of opinion with the Tribune Company. And what do you know? Slowly but surely, Cubs started to be better neighbors. They realized that being in the middle of a neighborhood was what brought people to Wrigley Field. It certainly wasn't the quality of the players. Wrigley Field was the icon, and they started to work a little more for us and help us. It was easier for the Cubs to get what they wanted when they stopped acting like Goliath. And in November of 1987, just two weeks after Dallas Green's departure, Mayor Washington gave in. He brokered a deal between the city and the team in order to keep the team in Chicago, in Wrigley Field, give them a certain amount of night games a year. I think all parties have had sufficient dialogue. It's gone on interminably. Uh, The process has been open. It's been fair. The decision has been arrived at. Twelve days later, Mayor Washington died of a heart attack. The city council went ahead and did the deed. The city council has voted to allow eight night games this season and 18 a year after that. And in the winter of 1987, workers started assembling Wrigley's lights. The construction site was top secret because... They were really afraid that people in the neighborhood were going to take BB guns and shoot out the lights. And then at dawn one April morning, they brought out the SWAT team. All of a sudden, you got seven or eight helicopters flying around. Beth Murphy stood on the rooftop of Murphy's bleachers and watched. The helicopters brought the light standards in and hovered and attached them to the roof. It looked like a scene from M.A.S.H., And Mike Quigley and the rest of Citizens United for Baseball in Sunshine conceded it was time to turn on the lights. People say, well, you lost. But they originally wanted, what, 79 games in artificial turf. They got 18. The compromise was pretty reasonable. 18 night games was not the end of the world. No booze sales after 9.20. No organ ditties after 9.30. And... Permit parking for residents only. We get more tow trucks, a remote parking location, traffic lanes to come to and from the ballpark. If we hadn't been around, there'd be no limits. They could have done whatever they wanted with everything. 
August 8th, 1988. First night with Wrigley Lights. August 8, 1988. How could you forget that? Yeah. That seemed to me like a stroke of genius. This is a, a date that everyone's going to remember the rest of their life because it's 8888. It'll be the Cubs and the Phillies making history when the sun sets on Wrigley Field today, Monday, August the 8th, 1988. Rick Sutcliffe, the Red Baron, was the starting pitcher. I was involved in a lot of so-called big events, but nothing comes close to what went on that night. It wasn't happening. A spectacle. A celebration. It was as close to a World Series as we would experience. When 13,000 tickets to the game were put on sale, 1.5 million telephone calls were made to the ticket office in three and a half hours. I had like three or four hundred people that were calling, is there any way you can get a ticket to that ball game? I mean, it was standing room only. There were celebrities here. Bill Murray was here. A lot of people wearing tuxedos. People were out in their bleachers wearing ties. The sweat factor was intense. It had to have been 100 degrees. It's just about as uncomfortable on the field as it has been for any day game all year long. So many people out there that simply will not accept this even though it is reality. They don't need night baseball. They could have kept a tradition. Charlotte Neufeld was keeping an eye on the invading throngs. We have a neighborhood watch patrol of 200 people looking to see if there are solutions to the problems that night baseball brings. And Bill Murray was in the broadcast booth, hamming it up with Harry Carey and a Budweiser. It was like there was going to be a public execution, the mood outside. Throwing out the first ball will be Mr. Cub himself, Ernie Banks. How will he react to seeing the lights? Probably cry. It's not out of sadness, it's just... I've seen so much joy and happiness there in the daytime. It's like different. Now at this time, we direct your attention to the on-deck circle as the Wrigley Field lights will be officially turned on. 91-year-old Cub fanatic Harry Grossman performs the honorary duty of bidding farewell to an era. And he was pretty excited, standing over by the first base dugout with some fake contraption that looked like something out of Mission Impossible that you're going to blow up something. And he would press the button and he says, Let there be life! And then suddenly, here they go. Heaven, a.k.a. Wrigley Field, was illuminated. Look at the light! You know, for 100 years, you had grown accustomed to looking at it during the day. And the next thing you know, I mean, it just lit up. It set a glow in the neighborhood like a meteor. It was unbelievable. The green became greener. The 400 sign in center field suddenly jumped out at us. It was like seeing, you know, your best girl dressed up, like going to the prom. It's the most beautiful park in the world, and it's, it's pretty under the lights, too. That's what I was hoping. Just before the first pitch, Sutcliffe got special marching orders. They were people from the Hall of Fame. And they said, we want the first pitch to go to Cooperstown. We don't want it put in play. And I go, just speak English. What are you guys telling me here? If the first pitch was fouled off into the stands, or God forbid it was hit for a home run, it wouldn't make it to Cooperstown. The Hall of Fame was asking Rick to make sure the ball ended up in the catcher's mitt. We've talked to the home plate umpire, Eric Gregg, and he has told us that he will have a generous outside corner for you on that first pitch. And I go, you're telling me if I throw the pitch eight inches outside, he's going to call it a strike. He said he would do that. I said, you got it. The first pitch of the ball game. The crowd's going nuts. And as I wound up to throw it, I remember feeling like the stadium exploded. Everybody wanted to take a picture of that first pitch. Where do all those lights flicker from? Those are people with flash cameras, Harry, trying to get a piece of history. Sutcliffe did what he was told. He threw the first pitch outside. Eric Gregg goes ball one. And I was like, you got to be shitting me. And excuse my language, but that's exactly what my thoughts were at that point. Eric Gregg years later told me that he changed his mind. He goes, there's a lot of people watching. He wasn't going to call it a strike if it wasn't a strike. And instead of thinking about the next pitch, all my mind was thinking about was what in the world just happened? Are you okay? You having a stroke or what's going on here? I've got to throw a strike now. There's a drive. And it ended up in the street. Phil Bradley hits a home run off of me. And later on, I found out that Bill Murray, who was in the booth at the time, goes, Turn 
He goes, if Phil Bradley hits a home run off of Rick Sutcliffe, this is not going to work. But in the Cubs' half of the first inning. Here's Ryan Sandberg. He swings a drive. It might be. Holy cow. I like these lights. I like them. Curry, does it look like rain out there or what? Yeah, there's some storm warnings being issued. On the western edge of the ballpark, you can start to see the growing cloud mass. The crowd now alarmed by the lightning. All of a sudden, the wind changed. Boom. Starts coming in right off the lake. Is the scoreboard wavering? It's shaky up there. It was creepy. It was really, really weird. Then you go, oh, God, something's about to happen. We had asked the American Indian Center, could they do a rain dance and have it rain that night? And it did. It was a deluge. It came down in buckets. It's like, this isn't going to stop, is it? And then... Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's game is under a rain delay. It just kept on coming down. A bunch of, like, fear-soaked water rats walking around the neighborhood now going, excuse me, can I come into your house? It's raining outside. Can I come in your house? I need a bathroom. But ameliorate some of the fear of the people losing on their lawn, you know, just kind of wash it away. Then finally, ladies and gentlemen, tonight's game has been postponed. Would you know it? The first night game is not the first night game. Tomorrow now is scheduled to be the first night game. It was like God was telling us, you might think you're going to pick the day that you turn on the lights at Wrigley Field, but I'll let you know. It couldn't be printed in the newspaper, but everybody knew that God peed on Wrigley Field. Originally, there were 18 night games a year. Then it crept up to 22, then 30, then 43, and now a max of 47. And the Cubs still want more. These days, night baseball at Wrigley, it's no big deal. As Jack Brickhouse predicted back in the day. Years from now, for heaven's sakes, mm-hmm. you'll have kids in those bleachers out there who will not be able to remember what life was like without lights at Wrigley Field. It's like kids can't imagine life before the internet. What right. did you do? How did you know things? And now the big thing is that everybody wants the mojo of a Wrigley Field. They want limited seating so you can charge higher prices. You want something that has character, quote-unquote. Not too much character, but like marketable character. They're all trying to capture some sense of baseball that has been lost. You go back to your old neighborhood, it's not your old neighborhood. You go out to Wrigley, it's not the old Wrigley. Nothing stays the same. So... Ultimately, some beautiful innocence was lost, but the neighborhood has since thrived and grown with leaps and bounds. Do I wish it never had changed a minute? Yeah, I guess I do. But you know what? Wrigley Field is still there. The ivy's still on the wall. The scoreboard still sits up in center field. That, to me, is so much worth the trade-off of having an apartment building with a plaque on it that says, this is where Wrigley Field used to be. Day baseball without the possibility of lights is like a world that nobody will ever know now. And I felt lucky that I knew it. Cheap seats in the sunshine and maybe sticking your thumb out at the man. You know, we actually felt like we were rebels, revolutionaries, because we were Cub fans. And they hadn't figured out a way to tame it yet. It was an important lesson and a good lesson in the need to accept change. If Wrigley Field could change then really anything could change. Come out to Wrigley Field, the home of the Cubs. You care to fly right over the wall. You strike out troubles and woe when you let yourself go. You see the National League play ball. Come on and see some real action. You'll be right in it. The sun will relax you. Enjoy every minute out at Wrigley Field. Thanks for listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan. ESPN Films senior producer Aaron Leiden is our series editor, and I served as editor of this episode as well. This episode was created in partnership with Long Haul Productions. It was produced and edited by Team Longhall, Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister, with editorial and music help from Maggie Bowman, and production support from Ingrid Retchen, and archival research from Matthew Fisher. 
Former Cubs PA announcer Wayne Mesmer was our host. Music performed and composed for Long Haul by longtime Chicago baseball organist Nancy Faust on her Hammond B3 organ. For more on Long Haul, visit their website, longhaulpro.org. Mixing and sound design for this episode by Ryan Ross Smith. The 30 for 30 podcast team includes Kate McAuliffe, who was the production assistant on this episode, as well as Taylor Barfield, Vin DeAnton, Ryan Nantel, and producers Keith Romer, Andrew Mambo, and Julia Lowry Henderson. Connor Shell and Libby Geist are executive producers for ESPN Films. Adam Newhouse is director of development. The ESPN Films team includes Deidre Fenton, Jenna Anthony, Catherine Sankey, Jennifer Thorpe, and Colin Fleming. The ESPN Audio team includes Trog Keller, Tom Ricks, Megan Judge, Pete Giannisini, and Ryan Graner. Special thanks to Ed Hardig, Les Grobstein, Beth Murphy and the staff at Murphy's Bleachers, Pat Hughes, Keith Schramm and the Press Box staff at Wrigley, Mark and Scott Geyer, Mark Grace, Paul Sullivan, Bruce Levine, Randy Rice, Nancy Kazak, Tara Vallis, Jerry Patikin, the Bleacher Preacher, Craig Lynch, Gary Pressey, Ira Levine, Esther Ayakoro, Randy Merkin, and the staff of ESPN Chicago, Ellie Leonard at Red Pencil, Elizabeth Newty at Skybird, the good people of Sabre, and Patelli's Pizzeria in Three Oaks, Michigan. Thanks to ESPN's Ryan Hurley, Ray Dinahan, RJ Santillo, Rodney Belazare, Tony Chow, and Kate LaRue. Louise Argianis, Jason Helig, and Jennifer Thorpe provided archival assistance. Roger Jackson provided fact-checking. Our theme music was composed by Rishikesh Hirwe of Song Exploder. We're posting lots of extras on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you own a No Lights t-shirt or you were there on 8888 for the first night game, let us know. You can sign up for our newsletter through our website, 30for30podcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to 30 for 30 Podcasts in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week with more 30 for 30.